and welcome to the Inner Network Podcast, where I chat with inspiring women about their career and advice to the next generation of founders, CEOs, and thought leaders. I'm your host, Kyla Kablin, and I'm so excited to be joined by Priya Chopra. Priya is the founder and CEO of One Milk, Two Sugars, an award-winning digital marketing and public relations agency. One Milk, Two Sugars was just named one of Canada's fastest growing companies by the 2020 growth list. Priya has weaved her passions for diversity, social awareness, and female empowerment into the fabric of her agency's DNA. This includes her most purpose-driven initiative yet, the 2020 launch of Double Shot, a talent and influencer marketing agency aimed at broadening representation and inclusivity in lifestyle marketing. In today's episode, we talk about the importance of establishing clear company pillars, how she's advocating for BIPOC influencers in the industry, and how her entrepreneurial background ultimately led her to start a successful public relations agency with a portfolio that includes top international lifestyle brands, including Nivea, Coppertone, L'Oreal, and Centrum. I'll be leaving all of her links in the show notes, but in the meantime, enjoy the episode. Hi, Priya. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Hi, Kayla. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you on and just talk to talk about One Milk, Two Sugars and Double Shot. But before we get started, I always like to play a quick game of this or that. So I'll be giving you two choices and I'll just get you to pick one. Sure. Awesome. So the first one is, would you rather read a book or journal? A journal. Do you do it every day? (laughs) Terrible book reader. Um, I have to admit, no, a journal. And that falls in line with our work. Obviously, we read journals Mm -hmm. all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I love journaling. It's a really good way to just start your day or even end your day. So that's awesome. I've got one right here. It's like always with me. Perfect. So the next one is, would you rather work from home or in the office? Both. Can I have both? It's tricky. I've been loving working from home. I, I often, we had a remote working plan before, so it's not new to us or not new to me anyway. I kind of miss the office life, but I think a happy medium is both. So offering that flexibility to both myself and the team, it's pretty cool. Yeah, and I think that's where things are going. I've heard even with my company that, you know, after this, you know, pandemic, when things kind of settle down, they will kind of adopt uh, work from home mentality a few days of the week. So it's kind of nice to see that it's more open now and it's not as strict. Fast forwarded on that topic. Big yeah. time. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Okay. The next one is, would you rather have dinner out or dinner in? If my husband's cooking in, <laughs> <laughs> it's better than me. Um, but out, I love going out. I'm pretty social. So yeah. Okay. And the last one, and I feel like I have to ask this because it's kind of on brand with your company. Would you rather have <laughs> your coffee, like iced coffee or hot coffee? Iced. I don't know if that's a surprise, but and it's not with one milk and two sugars. Um, but iced is, is usually how I like to drink my coffee. If I'm out, it's often I get iced coffee. Do you do oat milk or soy milk or that's so funny you ask because I feel so lame to say this. I tried oat milk for the first time literally this like this month or last last <laughs> month in November. And it's delicious. It just didn't sound very appetizing and I never considered it. And then someone's like, you have to try this. And she brought me over this amazing latte she made and it was with oat milk. So 
yeah, I'm loving the oat milk. So I do have some in my fridge. It's nice because it's actually sweeter. So you don't have to put too much sweetener in it. So it works. Yeah, I love it too. Okay, well, awesome. Thank you so much for answering those questions. It's always so nice to get to know, you know, the person a little bit more with these questions. But before we dive into, you know, your agency, can you tell us a little bit more about your background and how you got started in the industry? Um, I know it's been a whirlwind for you. You've been in the industry for so long, but can you take us back to after you graduated from Queens, right? Oh my gosh. I went to so many universities. I went to Queen, <laughs> U of T, Concordia. Then I did my master's in Europe. So I did <laughs> go to a lot of different universities. I ended up graduating from Concordia uh, here in Montreal and the co-op program. So I was in the work study program. So basically you don't really have any time off. You're either in school or you're working. So every semester you sort of switch, which it fits my personality really well because the routine of just being in class all day was obviously not my style and um, having that change and that opportunity to get work experience. So that really accelerated the opportunities for me right after graduating. I received during my last co-op uh, placement, I was at L'Oreal and um, really by accident, they were, they had an opening. It was one of the first times that L'Oreal was offering placements at Concordia or McGill or, you know, whoever was going to apply. And um, there was only so many people that I interviewed and I luckily got the job. So right after that, I did my co-op in Toronto with them in PR in the luxury division. So that was like a dream job for a kid my age at the time. And um, when I finished working, when I finished school, they offered me a job full-time. So basically I started directly out of university working for L'Oreal. It was an amazing opportunity to grow um, and to learn different aspects. It was in marketing. So I started off in sales. Um, I worked in marketing coordination. I worked as a product manager and I switched between I worked in the hair business. I worked in the, um, so I worked for Redken for hair. I worked for L'Oreal Paris for makeup um, and basically all of the L'Oreal Paris umbrella. And then in luxury, they have the license for all of the fragrances. So, you know, luxury fragrances from Ralph Lauren, Armani, et cetera. So I just got such a breath and scope of so, so much, um, so much of their business. And it was an extraordinary experience. So after that, I left to do my master's. So that's when I sort of took the opportunity to travel, to do a post-grad at that point, to do something a bit more specific to see if that would pique my interest in fashion management. So essentially it was an MBA in fashion and I did that in Milan, which was extraordinary. And once again, came back home when it was done and started working independently after that. And that's been a long time. So I'm not going to say how long, but it's been a long time. <laughs> so you mentioned that you were, when you were at L'Oreal, you had the opportunity to kind of get your foot in the door with different areas of the business. At what point did you realize that you wanted to hone in on PR? I think that when I was working for myself and consulting, I felt that PR was really a specialty that was being subcontracted. So it was something that people were looking for as a skill set versus marketing consulting was something that was being done in-house. So it quickly became evident for me if I wanted to offer a service that was something that people were looking for. And that was also a skill set that needed to be built over time, you know, by virtue of relationships and being super focused on a niche. 
I decided to really single that out. And it's a bit risky because the more you go niche and specific, you have to say no to certain business and you say yes to certain business. And then you just become known and you work hard in that arena. So I think we've done a really great job over the years of just being true to who we are and saying, okay, this is going to be our slice of the pie. This is what we're going to specialize in and become known for. And I made that decision not easily. It took a while to figure it out. I would say I was already in business for a few years, um, more than three, before I decided to say, okay, you know what? I'm going to focus strictly on media relations. So it did take a while to learn that. Yeah. So you mentioned also consulting. So consulting came before One Milk, Two Sugars. And then how did that kind of evolve? How did that come from, you know, concept and the ideation phase to really just launching the business? Because I was working with, at the time, you know, when you're starting off, uh, I was working with a lot of small businesses and mostly it was entrepreneurs. So that was really, I think that was really an interesting step for me and why I, I understand clients so well. I started by working so closely with so many business people and just understanding what their needs were for their, for what they wanted and how close to them, their business was. And I get that because obviously I have my own business. So it's almost like a child to me. It is my, I joke about it being my fourth kid. It is my, my, I have three kids and then I have the business. So I think that really honed my interpersonal skills and my client servicing skills. Um, I have to credit that because I worked for a number of years, um, just consulting and working with independent shops, but then I wanted to grow the business. So I decided to uh, evolve to hire people to grow. And it's not something that everybody wants. I think some people can be quite content just counting on themselves. Uh, but I really saw bigger things for One Milk. And I felt that I wanted to grow a team. And I also started to grow my family. So I really couldn't do everything on my own. So it was definitely necessary to um, build a team that could help me out as well and help me grow the vision and the business. Yeah, I think that's awesome to hear because like you mentioned, so many people are so content with just being a freelancer or a consultant, like a consultant and just doing it on their own. But it's really impressive to see that you've been able to grow that. And now you have an office in Toronto, Montreal and New York. So that's really impressive. And, you know, I followed your company and that's why I reached out. So it's, Thank been, you. yeah, it's been really, you know, nice to hear the story behind it. So I also wanted to ask, cause I'm really curious about the name One Milk, Two Sugars. So can you tell us a little bit about the meaning behind the name, how that kind of came about? I can't take credit for that name. The name was actually, so when my, so there's two phases of the business. I had partners in the first phase and the second phase, I was my, I was the owner of the company. Um, so when I had partners, we were three, a milk and two sugars. And um, so one of my partners came up with the idea. Actually, we had the name before the business and said, if we ever come up with a business, we got to call it one milk, two sugars. So we figured, Hey, why can't we call a communications company? One milk, two sugars. And honestly, it's stuck. I think it makes people laugh. I think it gets us a lot of attention. We've been able to fully build our brand identity with this name and it just keeps going places. So we're really happy about that. But yeah, it was originally three partners, milk and two sugars. And then the name just stuck and, you know, I rolled with it afterwards. Yeah. And I love it. It's completely a different type of, you wouldn't expect the name in the industry. And that's what I love about it. And yeah. it really catches people off guard and you have this amazing meaning behind it. So that's awesome. I also wanted to get into double shot because it's, you know, a sister business of One Milk, Two Sugars. So how did that lead to starting Double Shot? At what point did you 
know that this is an agency that I want to start because of, you know, all of the different aspects that you are seeing when it comes to diversity inclusion and the pay gap within the industry when it comes to people of color. At what point did you decide that it was time for you to start something like this? So Double Shot um, was an idea, a name, a business that came to me in 2018. So I started to first conceptualize the business then. Um, I worked on the brand identity in 2019, building out sort of what this brand could look like, what would be the narrative behind this brand and what would be our mission. And again, our niche that we were carving out. It is a very bold niche. I mean, it's not something that, you know, you don't think we have to think about when we do something like this, because it is saying, you know, hey, this is something that's going to support underrepresented groups. And that's what we're putting forward. And that's why we think it's important. So of course that can be faced with backlash and what have you. So we had to do it in a way that was mindful. Um, we took a lot of help from different people in our network in terms of people from the BIPOC community, getting different perspective um, and just, you know, working with different partners to consult with us and make sure that we had our, had our messaging down right um, and really reflected the reality. So I come from an East Indian background. My parents are Indian. They immigrated here. So I'm also a kid of immigrant, immigrant parents. And I, and, I, and I love that. And I wish my kids <laughs> had that same opportunity because it is very difficult to see your parents um, have to start over and rebuild and you know work um, from the bottom up again. My mom was extremely forward thinking. Um, so not a typical uh, East Indian mentality that you see, you know, comedians joke about Indian parents, you know, for sure there was some of that, but definitely very, very liberal. So my thinking was already very um, advanced. I think we had, I had a lot of great role models um, in my background as well in my family. And the reality, the reality of it was that I was still Indian and I was still growing up with two cultures being Canadian and Indian and then living in the French province of Quebec. So for sure, I felt a little bit left out often in, in certain situations. I think it was more present when I started to own a business and started to have meetings and go into meetings where I felt I was at a disadvantage to win because I didn't connect maybe with the person on the other side as much as someone else would. I was not often seeing females owning their business, going into these meetings and that too being somebody from um, somebody being a visible minority. And I started to get asked about that. And it, it was kind of funny because they said, oh, you know, there's programs available for women entrepreneurs that are also people of color. And I could see that there was more emphasis on these kind of topics. And it got me thinking about it because I don't really think of myself as that, but it started to become obvious to me that I was a little bit, you know, um, unique in these, in these cases, uh, in terms of my beliefs, I believe people are people. I welcome everyone. I don't think about, you know, what color their skin is or what their orientation is. I think of who they are as, as people. My family, where we have biracial kids, uh, my husband, he's Haitian, French. So my kids are literally Canadian, Indian, Haitian, and French. And you couldn't get more opposite corners of the world uh, from one side to the next. And just finding common ground, you know, between me and, and my husband and, and being able to have a happy marriage and get along and see each other's point of view and not even the same culture, not even the same religion. So I think people have to keep an open mind. And I've always been really vocal about the topic because it's very natural. It's like a conversation that comes very naturally to me. Um, and I think, you know, we all have a responsibility to talk about this. So, so you know, I'm glad you're, you're asking me about Double Shot. Double Shot is sort of my passion project. It's something, you know, that I think can have immense potential. I think the timing is amazing. It's been phenomenally received. 
I know we're going to put our signature touch on it in the one milk, uh, two sugar style. So it is called double shot. So again, coffee, um, but we are going to give it its own uh, identity. And, um, you know, we're starting to recruit our talent and it's going to be the talent that need the attention. It's not going to be the popularity contest. It's not going to be the ones that already are doing well. It's definitely going to be the ones that don't necessarily get on the radar of brands and that need the push and that need the platform. Yeah, and that's so amazing because even talking with other women in the industry, it's so apparent that this is happening and it's the fact that, you know, just now and just this year, everything's come, you know, kind of coming to light about these issues that have already been there and that have already, you know, been deep-rooted in our society. It's it's crazy to think about that. So it's really amazing to see that double shot is coming to life. And you mentioned that you're just now recruiting the talent. So how has that been like for you when it comes to finding these, you know, these people in the industry that are up and coming? And like you mentioned, they might not have a big following. What do you look for when it comes to finding those influencers or just people that are creators? Yeah, I think we had to really identify who we wanted to recruit. Um, over and above everything else, we want real people. We want the real, the real deal. We don't want, you know, the posy, the perfect, the picture perfect grid. It's not about that. That's not who we're looking for. And I don't think brands are looking for that either. We have a unique perspective on one milk, two sugars to work with content creators, to work with brands. We do probably 50 or 60 campaigns a year, already booking talent, connecting them to brands coming up with the ideation and how that's all going to roll out. So we are often in conversation with brands and we know what they're looking for um, vis-a-vis the talent and how relevant it is to them. So it is a skill that's transferable to double shot. And it's something that we can, you know, use our different technology, the tools that we have to identify certain talent. I mean, for sure, we're looking for talent that identify to our mission um, that connect with us as well. Once we actually speak to them and we get on the phone, we feel the connection with them that they could be a great partner. We're not looking for a huge roster when we're starting. We're looking for you know a handful of people that we're going to do really good work with. Um, so we're looking for that authenticity and that realness and um, the lightness and positivity that's going to come through. So that's first. Um, we definitely are looking at some of their statistics and, and, you know, in terms of how they're engaging, um, we are also, you know, sort of working, we've had a lot of outreach from people who want to be part of double shot and we've actually been offering free consulting on what they can do to get their numbers up or, you know, just to help them out in terms of improving their statistics that they can be more approachable and be ready to have conversations with brands. So that's something we're completely doing uh, pro bono. And it's really something that we feel like we, we should be doing um, just by virtue of being, you know, uh, sort of an expert in that field. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's coming together really well. I think that it's beautiful to hear the stories of these content creators when they tell us their stories or how much they also align with, with what we want to do. It makes it much more meaningful that this is something that is really relevant and necessary. And then from the brand side, I mean, it's been incredibly received. I think brands are just so, so willing to have this conversation. And I'm really happy about that because it's not always like that. It hasn't always been like that. So I think that that's great. So on the brand side, it's been really positive as well. Yeah, that's really good to hear. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you talked about just the, and I've, I've seen some of your interviews before as well. And I know you touched on you know, the pay gap in the industry, like at what point did you notice that there was a pay gap between creators that are, you know, people of color, BIPOC, 
between that and white creators, at what point did that come apparent to you that this was happening in the industry? And, you know, how has that evolved throughout just overall in your years of experience in the industry? I think the pay gap conversation that I often refer to is more so on a orientation level. So I've spoken about it much more between male and female pay gap. And that's something that I'm very vocal about. That's another thing I speak about a lot is like female in (laughs) pretty much female empowerment and um, the pay gap between men and women for the same role. Yes, I speak about that a lot. In terms of uh, based on uh, their ethnicity, their cultural background, I can't say that that was something that was the driving force for me or something that I re- like knew offhand um, right away. I just felt that there was this level of opportunity that would not be given to people of color that would bother me. So it would be the opportunities that were more substantial uh, would never go to the person that, you know, maybe I was rooting for, or I wanted uh, to have, you know, present as, you know, for a campaign or what have you. So I just felt that, there could be certain people of color in campaigns, but they were often the ones that were the, you know, the token Latina, the token, you know, um, someone who's black, someone who's Indian, someone who's, so it was the people you would think about all the time. And then it was sort of like, okay, my job is done. I have, you know, my pick and that's it. Um, and that was, that was sort of the, the reason that I, I felt the need to start this because I felt that, no, there's, there's so many other content creators out there um, that need more visibility from brands. And it's not just when you have a pride campaign that you might look at someone from the LGBTQ plus community. It's not when you have a Diwali, you know, happening that you think of an Indian, like it should be all the time and see them for who they are. Right. So, um, that was really the driving force for me in terms of pay. I mean, I've obviously read and heard a lot of those conversations. I don't have enough benchmarks to really comment on that. I think that one thing that I do know for a fact is more based on orientation and gender, but that's a whole other, that's a whole other conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's, it is an important conversation to have because, you know, things are changing and the times are changing and I feel like the brands and companies should be changing with it. Um, so I think it's important to really touch on that. You also mentioned that, you know, when it comes to brands hiring creators and influencers that, at some points, they just look to those types of creators when it comes to ethnicities or orientation when it is for a specific campaign. And I, you know, I don't think that should be the case. But at what point did you identify that there was a big lack of diversity and representation in the influencer lifestyle marketing industry specifically? I would say it's been a number of years. I mean, this goes back like forever. I mean, I would say it's been easily three, four years of, of listen, at the beginning, influencer marketing today, it's, it's not what it used to be, right? So for sure, now that there, it is a, a business that has taken off, you know, when influencer marketing started, I remember, you know, people were actually not thinking it was going to go anywhere. And, oh, do we actually have to compensate talent? Like, is that even a conversation? I mean, these are all topics that, you know, brands were just not used to these independent personal platforms. It was a whole, a whole new learning. Um, but I think now, you know, definitely the conversations that we have, the type of deals that we're doing on, on influencer marketing, they're obviously proven highly effective. But I think in terms of, you know, in terms of when you speak about, um, you know, people from certain um, groups that are marginalized, not being, I guess, uh, put or cast in campaigns, I would say that's nothing new. I would say it's something that maybe wasn't as obvious to people before, unless it meant something to you, unless you noticed it. 
And I think that a lot of those conversations were just not happening. And that's why it's great. And I think it's a responsibility on the part of everyone to welcome that open forum of conversation and to recognize, you know, how much work we still have to do on the topic. We had, you know, even in, in the political sphere, people in our political party here in Quebec saying that racism does not exist here in Quebec. I mean, it's it's just, you know, and then there was so many viral videos that, you know, showed up showing that, hey, there is discrimination here too. It's not just in the US like it exists in Canada. I mean, there's so many people that still sort of like are not cognizant of it. And it's, it's fine because it's not maybe a part of their life. They don't really, it doesn't impede them in any way. So they're not thinking about it, but I think it takes people to point it out and, you know, they don't want to have the necessarily people of color don't want to have that burden, but it is sort of part of the discussion. Um, it is the responsibility for them to talk about it, to educate others as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you also mentioned that, you know, brands now are a little bit more open to talking about these topics and just being part of the conversation. But how have you seen it change over the years and specifically this year? Because I think this year has been, you know, a big year of change for sure. So how have you seen companies, you know, continue to advocate and, you know, how can companies overall just help change the narrative when it comes to diversity inclusion? Yeah, well, this year, I mean, they say that there was two pandemics, obviously, there was the what happened with the health pandemic, but then there was also the racial racial uprising and what happened there, I think really, really compounded things for people. I think that we were already in this sensitive situation, um, sort of like reanalyzing everything. And then you have you see something like this that happened with George Floyd in May that just offended everybody. Um, and if you weren't offended, I, you know, I don't know, like everyone was just enough is enough. So I think it was a great catalyst to speed up the process of talking about diversity and inclusion. If you hear and, and listen to people who are proponents of diversity, I mean, they have been speaking about these things for a number of years, but nobody was necessarily listening or acting or maybe acting once and then forgetting about it after. I think there's been fundamental shifts in the way that companies are looking at their practices for diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's pretty amazing to see. I mean, you know, if you go on even certain websites of brands like major brands, you'll see their Black Lives Matter commitment paramount on the top of their page above their products. And it really goes into detail about what their commitment is, what their plan is, in what period of time, what would be the milestones that they're looking to achieve. So I think on our end too, you know, being even a smaller scale business, we put together, you know, right when all of this was going down, our own sort of pledge, if you will. What is our pledge? What is our commitment um, to this community, uh, specifically to the Black community? And what are we going to do? And what are our benchmarks? And what are we looking to to also you know, mitigate or um, sort of work on internally? So I think a lot of companies are, are have already been doing it. There's an amazing video I saw with Procter & Gamble, like a corporate video that they did on unconscious bias. And it was done years ago. So some companies have been doing the work already, which is amazing. And I think others are getting their, their footing and trying to figure out what's their diversity inclusion roadmap in their company and how they're going to make that happen. And what's going to be sort of the sticking point, like how is it going to obviously, how are they going to be accountable? And I think that's what everybody wants. They just want to make sure that it's not something that's forgotten about. And I feel really positive about that. I feel that it's a time where you know, we thought, is this going to last? Is this conversation going to last? And it is still, and I've seen it. So I can tell you that it's, it's a real positive thing. Yeah. And companies and brands aside, how can individuals really contribute to, you know, changing this narrative and just being, 
just continuing to advocate for it. What are, you know, resources that you have found specifically helpful, you know, over this year or just in the course of the years? And how can others really just contribute to that? I mean, it depends on the person. It depends how much or how little they want to get involved. Uh, so it's really a particular choice. I think the very first thing that I ask everybody is just be open-minded. I think that that's something is keep an open mind. I'm a big believer in giving people the benefit of the doubt. I'm completely, I try to put myself in other people's shoes a lot before I make any judgments. I try doing that as much as possible. I mean, I'm only human, but I, I do take a conscious effort to understand people's perspective. And I think that that's something that people get honed in by their own feelings or their own sort of, you know, you're a product of your experience and your culture and your background. So you see things a certain way, but you have to, again, see people for people and try to just keep an open mind. And that's something that a lot of people are getting involved in the conversation by listening and learning. And that's something that is very simple to do, but you have to be obviously open to it and wanting to do it. So that is like the simplest thing I can say is start for it. Keep an open mind listen and learn along the way. It's going to be hard to listen to certain things and people don't always want to get into that because it's an uncomfortable conversation for many people, but it's a necessary one. And I think that we all have a responsibility, both people from the BIPOC community and people outside of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. You know, and there's so many resources now too that have popped up this year that may have not, you know, been advertised like last year or years before. So it's been really great to see that and to just see that there are more opportunities for people to, you know, whether it's to donate or just to continue the conversation. I think it's been really great. So I want to touch on something that you mentioned earlier that I, you know, kind of caught on because, you know, I feel like with myself too, coming from, you know, immigrant parents, like they moved here and they had to start over as well. And I, education first and foremost has been instilled in me because of that. And I know that you also mentioned, you know, when you started your company that being a visible minority, you did face some, you know, not, I wouldn't say issues, but obstacles, I would say when it comes to navigating the industry, being a female founder and also being a founder that, you know, comes from a multiracial background. So can you tell us more about your experience navigating through that and just, you know, how you overcame those obstacles and especially with imposter syndrome, because I, because I think that's really huge. So how were you able to overcome that? Well, I have to say, I don't have imposter syndrome at all. I've never had it. <laughs> never. <laughs> I've never had it. And I find it's funny because I did, I did a conference and about 90% of the women in this room put up their hand. I said, are you kidding me? Mm -hmm. No. I, I don't feel like that. And I've never, I, I think it goes back to what I said. I grew up surrounded by very strong-minded, opinionated, educated Indian women in my mom's side of the family. And they were just doing things that, you know, they didn't think about being from a certain background or being, you know, um, Indian or an immigrant or this or that. So I would go into meetings and, and, you know, rooms where, yeah, I did stick out, but I never really noticed it till later. It was weird. It was not something that stuck out to me until I started to hear statistics about being, you know, one of the few female founders. Like I went to a meeting from, uh, it was like an economic meeting. So it was about businesses that export to the U.S., and they were giving statistics because we obviously work out of the U.S. as well. And they said, only, um, so there's 16%, uh, and this is like not a current statistic, I have to look it up, but just to give you an idea, this is a, a few years ago, a year or two ago, saying how only 16% of businesses, small, medium businesses 
in Canada are female owned. So having a female founder, 16%. And only it drops down to only five to 8% export. So that's how small I was in this group that, you know, I didn't realize it's such a big challenge. So when I hear about women not being able to, you know, rise up and, and, and own their own businesses, or even if they do being such a small number, um, you know, we recently won one of Canada's fastest growing companies. We made the list when we inquired, Oh, by the way, because it's a topic that we feel really strongly about and advocating about how many female CEOs are in that list of, you know, almost 400. You want to take a number, you want to guess out of 400, how many are owned by women? Oh my gosh. I, it's, t- it's tricky because I know I, it's, I know it's a, it's a small number. So I'm going to say <laughs> 15, probably. You're pretty close. Yeah. 20, 20, wow. so like literally 5% of the list. So these are things that, you know, once you start to hear that, then you realize that you are maybe an anomaly in this, in this pond, you know, that's, it's just, it, it's really, it kind of gets depressing because it's why can't other women join? Why, what are the obstacles? Um, so I personally, did not fear anything. I just did. And that's just my personality. I'm very fearless. I'm a big risk taker. I literally act first and think later. I've always been like that. If I was into gambling, I'd probably be (laughs) broke. Um, But no, I'm a complete risk taker. So I never thought of obstacles. I definitely can't say I always succeeded. I mean, there was things that I failed at and I learned from, but I don't think failure is negative. I think you learn. So I think we still have so much to learn and grow. So for me, it was all part of the progress. And, you know, I'm a big proponent of progress over perfection too. So letting go of some of that need for always having perfection and just moving forward. Um, So in terms of obstacles at that level, I think there was certain instances where for sure, when business got larger and the opportunities that was more at stake, I felt at a disadvantage in certain cases because of the chemistry um, being a factor in my business. So when you go and you meet a buyer or whoever's buying your service, I mean, it's a service company. I'm not selling a, like an apple, like, you know, or like, Mm -hmm. I don't know, water bottle. It's like, this is what you're buying. You see what it is, you know, what the price is and you understand what you're going to get. When you're buying services, it's completely on the human connection. So that is when I started to feel in certain instances, depending on who was on the other side um, and seeing the same sort of representation always on the other side. And that didn't look like me, didn't talk like me. It was difficult to connect. And at times I did feel that we didn't win possibly because of that connection not being there. I think this conversation is super important because even like you mentioned with the imposter syndrome. I I always like to ask every guest that I have if it's something that they've experienced and 90% of the time it's yes. So it's, it's nice to hear a different perspective on that. And, you know, what advice do you have for women that are maybe experiencing that and don't know how to overcome it and are in a place where they just feel like they just don't belong in this industry or they just, they can't get to this certain point that they see others at or see their, you know, whether it's their inspiration or, or people that in the industry that they look up to, they just can't get to that place and they just don't feel like they will ever achieve that. Mm -hmm. I think for women in particular, especially through social media and Instagram in particular, being a big culprit of this, uh, I don't go on social media all that much, even though it's a big part of my business. I don't get caught up in that. I find that there's a lot of 
looking at others with this notion of comparison or envy or thinking that they have everything figured out and you don't or wow everything looks so perfect and everybody talks about that but I know people think that and I know even I'm guilty of saying oh my gosh what a perfect life or perfect picture or whatever um and it's it's you know this notion of comparison I think is is something that women do a lot to themselves um and for me I think that one like key advice would be go at your own pace like I have something that I talk about a lot and I call it the Priya pace. I can look at other people and be envious of what they have because maybe they started their business at the same time as me and they are 10 times, you know, growing faster and larger and what have you. But I've made certain choices for myself in my life and I recognize what that is. I chose my family. I chose to have family. I chose to take my time. I chose to focus on quality um, and progress, um, you know, that was consistent with my lifestyle. So, I don't, I don't know what their path was. I don't know what their sacrifices were. Um, so I don't want to compare. So for me, I go on, on that a lot. I go, uh, I speak about that a lot, being at your own pace, um, and being at your own rhythm and everything lines up, you know, that's also something in the Indian culture, uh, where, you know, timing, faith, perseverance, belief, karma, all of that comes into place. And I think about that a lot. I think everyone has their own path. And you shouldn't push yourself or be too hard on yourself, you know, and just go at your own rhythm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so important because like you mentioned, you made the sacrifice to not even sacrifice, but you made the time for your family to grow that and Mm -hmm. to just take time for yourself. And, you know, other people might have sacrificed not having Mm -hmm. that or vice versa. So it's important to really take that into consideration. Mm -hmm. So you've been in the industry for quite some time and you have a lot of experience. So when it comes to your learning moments, what has been the biggest one for you over these years and what do you continue to take on with you day in day? Oh my gosh, learning. There's been so much, so much learning. Um, <laughs> just a few things. I mean, I think that one thing that people don't do enough of, they don't ask enough questions. Mm-hmm. And I find that you have to ask, you know, the ask and you shall receive. I find especially younger people, they don't ask enough questions. And I think there needs to be more of that, more probing, more asking, because you never know what you're going to hear on the other side. They're very fearful of asking questions or just timid. I don't know what it is Mm -hmm. or thinking that they should know it already or this judgment thing. So that I find is a big thing I notice. And I want to make sure young people ask more questions and be more curious um, and inquisitive because I think we're just so, you know, have everything at our disposal with information nowadays. Like when I grew up, we didn't have all that. So we'd have to use our, you know, I don't know, our maps, our paper maps to get around places or an encyclopedia. Like I remember the encyclopedia series that we used to have in our basement. I mean, we just had to be more resourceful and and, and think a little bit more. So I, I, I want to see young people ask more questions and they will be surprised what answers they're going to receive on the other end. So I think that that's a big thing. Ask and you shall receive. It's a big thing for me. Um, and it's worked in my favor many times. So that's one thing I would say. And I mean, I think the other notion is, um, you know, not, not being afraid of failure. I think that that's something that I've already spoken about. I think people think failure, they take it as self-defeat. I never think of it like that. I mean, you have to try you know, and there's only that you can, if you, you won't know until you try. Right. So, so for me, I think that our, our, our ability to accept that and our, and our sort of resilience to that and our interest in innovating all fuels from, from not being afraid of failure. So that's another thing that I think 
people as entrepreneurs, you know, we're definitely not risk takers. So I think that that's something you might see a common thread with, with entrepreneurs that they're not really scared of failing because they got to try it out. Uh, but it's one thing I highly encourage as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really good advice. And it's funny that you say that about young people not asking, because I feel like I've gone through that as well. Like I'm pretty new to the industry. I've only been in the industry for a few years. And I think, you know, when I was starting, I was so nervous to ask those questions. Like, of course, you'll you'll ask the important ones. But when it comes to the details, you're like, I can figure this out on my own. I can Google it. I can teach myself, et cetera, et cetera. So I feel like, you know, the technology and how things are going now in this industry, in this decade is really contributing to young people not asking because mm-hmm. they know that the answer is somewhere else. Yeah, so that's, yeah. That's really good advice. And I will definitely keep that with me as well. <laughs> well, I think you're asking a lot of good questions. So yeah, you have that going for you. So another one that I love to ask as well is a pinch me moment. So I love, you know, hearing about a pinch me moment that, you know, everyone has had throughout their career and just seeing their face light up too when they talk about it. So I'd love to know what your pinch me moment is. Probably had several, but I think, so the one that I mentioned earlier this year, I was sitting in my car and when we finally got word that we made uh, the list of Canada's fastest growing companies was definitely a pinch me moment because it's a list that, you know, you see other companies on or you've read about or, you know, and I think we thought about it, but we never entered. And then we decided, hey, let's give it a try. Because like I said, you know, you won't learn till you try and see what it's all about. So that was definitely a big moment where you just feel like a lot of your hard work kind of comes to fruition. I think another moment that, you know, was really significant for me, um, and this goes back, but it was really a turning point for me was when I had, so when I started, obviously I was just by myself and clients would call me for everything. But as I said, I wanted to grow a team and put them forward and be able to sort of, um, you know, not have to be in the day to day as much, but again, you know, they're hiring Priya. So I want to talk to Priya. Where's Priya? Yeah. Speak to Priya about this. So I worked for many, many years years on putting the team forward and um, sort of conditioning, you know, my key clients and letting go a little bit of that discomfort. I personally felt with it too. And being like, okay, I'm going to trust my team. I'm going to train them. I'm going to show them things like in my way and um, grow with them. So one time I remember getting a phone call from a client, a key client of mine, my biggest client at the time. And we would do this annual press trip to Paris at the time. There was a lot of press trips and I remember he said to me, oh, do you mind if this year you don't go and we take your employee, you know, my, one of my sugars that was on the account. And I can't tell you that was such a moment for me because I said, oh my gosh, I finally did it. (laughs) I finally put enough trust in my clients to trust my team and not me that they're going to take my staff over me on this trip. Mm -hmm. And that was really a big turning point for me. I was like, hallelujah, you would think that I would be annoyed to not go on a trip to Paris. No, I was not annoyed. I was more than content to stay back um, because it told me and made me realize like, okay, all of that work paid off. And from there, I can honestly tell you, I'm so removed from the front end of the business today. I still am aware of everything. And of course, all the, the burden is still on me as the leader of the company, but I'm not in the day-to-day anymore. And, it, and my team is just so talented and uh, obviously doing what they do best. Yeah, I mean, that also says a lot about you as well as a leader that, you know, you trust them and they trust you and it's reciprocated in that way. So it's awesome to see that. And it's really apparent too in 
you know, your website and your branding and your presence that your company and the people that work for you really do have such a community. And, you know, it just seems like it's just such a great place to work. So it's so great to chat with you about, you know, all these topics and just learning from you when it comes to, you know, being a founder and just your experience within the industry. So I just wanted to say, you know, big thank you for taking the time to chat with me today. Well, I had a great time. You made me reflect on a lot of key moments and milestones in my life. So thank you for that. That was wonderful. Thank you, Kayla.